Adahul Hadi is a managing director of marketing and a member of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Adelaide. Muslims Down Under is a platform for everyday Aussies to meet Aussie Muslims in a relaxed and friendly setting, enabling a learning environment and one that fosters respect and a lasting relationship. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hadi, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me, Ant. My pleasure. So I've basically compiled a list of questions from the community out there and our listeners, Mm -hmm. and uh, we're hoping you're going to be able to answer them for us. I'll do my best. Alrighty. Let's jump into it. So the first question is, in the world we live in today, with the scrutiny in the media of the Muslim faith, do you ever find yourself questioning yourself or some of your own religious beliefs, namely the stricter beliefs that involve women and the male hierarchy? Um, With the media, you see, and uh, first of all, we have to see if the criticism has been justified and if you can even call it a scrutiny. Um, Because if it was scrutiny, that would have been... Great, because Islam actually invites criticism. Quran repeatedly asks its readers to and demands them to think, contemplate, investigate, uh, question and seek before making their decision. Um, But what I feel media has done is acted very irresponsibly and for the most part presented only very biased stories and only um, one side of the story in most cases as well. So what it has essentially done is demonized Islam and Muslims and the results of that we see um, over and over and over. Christchurch is a recent example that's hit quite yeah. close to the home. Um, but then there are other studies that have been published over the years that show how it has um, seeded within the hearts of Australians um, and on a global level as well, that suspicion, that fear of Islam and Muslims, of their fellow Australians. Um, if I was to quote some studies, I have Challenging Racism Project 2011 that um, showed that 49% of the Australians admitted themselves to having negative sentiments towards Muslims. Um, another 49% uh, supported a ban on Muslim immigration, and that's Essential Poll Report 2016. Um, and all this, all of this, while 70% of Australians admit um, that they know little to nothing about Islam. So. Uh, we don't know about Muslims or Islam, but we are hating them anyway. So that yeah. is um, the Griffith University study from 2017. Um, add to that, uh, One Path Network in 2017 did, did some research and they found out that top five newspapers of Australia, only the five, they were publishing 3,000 articles roughly wow. per year. That's eight articles per day that negatively associated Islam or Muslims alongside words like violence, um, radicalization, like extremism. Um, so it would be unfair to call it a scrutiny. But being uh, a student of religion and being Muslim myself, someone who's um, not inherited Islam or religion, but tried to uh, learn it myself and um, decide for myself if uh, it has the right values or if it does teach good morals. Um, coming to um, questions like what the questioner ha- has called um, more stricter belief like women and male hierarchy. Um, we first of all need to separate or delve a bit more deeper of what, what that means. What are the stricter beliefs? Um, so what Islam, first of all, we need to define what the purpose of our lives is. Um, which God has said um, in Quran 
that verily the most honorable among you in the sight of Allah is he who is most righteous. So if our purpose is to attain nearness to God, then everything else becomes secondary, first of all. Um, and then we'll have to see, does has Islam established a spiritual equality between male and females or women and men? And if it hasn't, that I'd agree that it's unjust and it, it's, it's not the right belief to have. But Islam has established uh, spiritual equality and also physical equity. And that's one of the points of Muslims are under as well, that we vouch for um, empowerment and equality of women and that's fundamentally rooted within Islam. But where has this concept come from that Islam, for example, is stricter on women? Mm. Um, let's take an example, for example, is women are not allowed to handshake with men. For example, it's often in the media uh, portrayed as a oppressive sort of um, belief to have. But what is not looked at is it's the same goes for men as well, that men are not to have um, handshakes with women. So why do you not say that men are also oppressed, right? Yeah. Um, it, it goes both ways. Um, and so that, that's just one side of this. Then also comes, why is the question not asked to all the other um, religions as well? Because if you look at the prophets of other faiths, that Muslims also believe that they were the righteous prophets, for them, Christianity, the prophets of Judaism, Hinduism, and Buddhism, why is this allegation not raised against them? Um, so here's what Islam's philosophy of, um, uh, of our value is that it sets a standard and the standard is God. So the standard is not men. What Western feminism has done is it set a standard for women which is faulty and that standard is men. Mm. That they would always have to compare them against men if they want to feel worthy. If men can cut their hair short, the women should be able to cut their hair short, otherwise sure. they're not worthy. If men go to army, the women have to go to army, otherwise they're not worthy. So they are essentially trying to replicate men to feel empowered. Um, whereas the standard God has set is that attain, attaining the nearness to God is the standard. Um, and if we look at how Islam's established the rights of women, 1400 years ago, we have only been able to catch up to some of those, those rights in the Western world we live in 100 or 200 years ago. Islam mm -hmm. mandated women to have education. Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who is the founder of Islam, he said, attaining education is compulsory on every man and every woman. So that's something that was already made compulsory by Prophet Muhammad 1400 years ago, something that's only become part of our culture and society recently. Mm. Islam gave women the right to inheritance, something that also found its way into the Western law about a hundred or so years ago. Um, Islam also gave women the right to work and then own their property. By default, even in Australia about 100, 150 years ago, if you were to marry, a woman was to marry, all her property would automatically be converted to her husband's name. Yeah. Islam forbid that, Islam stopped that. It said man has no right over the earnings of the woman. She is independent in that sense. Um, divorce, Islam gave women the right to divorce, which was not existent even in our societies until 1920, I think it was. Mm. Um, my figures could be slightly, slightly wrong, maybe 10 years ago, 10 years before that, or 10 years after that. Um, but Islam gave women the right to divorce that she can separate from her husband 
um, if she wants. There is no compulsion on her to stay with, with the husband if she doesn't want to. Whereas the general law in Sweden and all European countries was that even if your husband abandons you, and he's nowhere to be found for years and years and years and no one can find him, you're still tied to his name and yeah. you're not free to marry anyone else. That was the that was the um, way of the time. Um, and there are plenty more things I can keep on going and cite and stuff as well. But I want to also establish how Islam's raised the status of women in the eyes of um, us as well. So... Just to give a bit of context, when Prophet Muhammad 1400 years ago, he came to the people of Arabs and he um, started preaching the message that God had given him. Women were so looked down upon, they were considered a commodity. Mm-hmm. There was the... Um, they had... Uh, they, they used to practice infanticide, infant, where they would kill um, their newborn daughters because they would consider them to be... Um, Lesser. To be lesser individual or to, to, to bring dishonor to the family. Um, that's the society we're looking at. But when Prophet Muhammad came, what did he teach? Did he just ignore all of that? Or did God actually bring forth a teaching to reestablish the status of the women? So Prophet Muhammad, um, there's a narration of Prophet Muhammad that says that every father who raises his daughters well, one daughter or two daughters or however many God's given him, who raises them well, gives them good education, teaches them good morals, I guarantee him heaven. Wow. That's the status that Islam established of daughters in the minds uh, and hearts of um, fathers then. For wives, Prophet Muhammad said, the best among you, addressing his companion, the best among you is the one who is best to his wife. So that's the status he established of wives. For Mm. mothers, he said, paradise lies at the feet of mothers. Didn't say paradise lies at the feet of your father. It says paradise lies at the feet of your mother. So if you if you serve them and if you obey them and if you treat them well, that that's where your paradise is. So I I personally don't think Islam is stricter on women. I think Islam's liberated women and um, freed her from the shackles of the society as well. And I guess what the question is more referring to uh, probably is uh, maybe. Um, relates to covering or um, hijab maybe um, but there, there's it's also there's a deeper philosophy behind that and that's all, not only for women there's also for men but I guess we'll come back we'll to, that later. to that later <laughs> yeah and I think that a lot, a lot of people what they don't realize is again it is like Christianity that you know you have people like myself that has a very small belief in it but then you've got people that go to church every week and believe every single word and live by the word, all that sort of stuff. And you've always, you're going to have those variances in all religions. Um, one of my experiences actually with a Muslim woman, I remember, uh, I think it was, they were sisters came in and I was working as a makeup artist. And when they realized I was male, they were like, uh, you aren't really supposed to touch her face because, you know, and I was like, I'm gay, so it's okay. Like, just look at me as a woman. And they were fine with that. They let me do her makeup. They were completely fine with it. So I think that people have got to remember that they're also human. It's not just about religion to every single person. And people are always going to have their 
you know, their beliefs, but they can falter now and again and be okay with that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Especially when it's in something that's not so serious. You know what I mean? As getting your makeup done. Your second question. Are you ready? (laughs) What is the main thing that people get wrong about Islam and what do you wish or what do you wish you could explain to them? Where do I start? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, there, There are plenty of things I can... Um, talk about here, I guess, but I'll just touch on a few aspects of it. So first of all, it's often portrayed as if Islam considers everyone who does not believe in Islam to be hellbound or mm. to be um, infidels. Yeah, infidel is an often word uh, word often said to sort of incite certain sort of uh, emotions in people. Um, so. And it's totally opposite to that. You see, I'll quote a verse of Quran here for you. It says, Surely the believers and the Jews and the Christians and the Sabians, whichever party from among the truly among these truly believe in Allah and the last day and does good deeds and does good deeds shall have their reward with their Lord and no fear shall come upon them, nor shall they grieve. Mm. So Quran, which is the source of Islam, which is the book that Muslims follow, it has the highest rank in the sources of Islam. Uh, second being the Sunnah, which is a tradition of Prophet Muhammad, and third being the Hadith, which is a saying of Prophet Muhammad. That itself categorizes these different beliefs and said, whoever does that and does good deeds will have his reward with me, God. Yeah. So it does not condemn non-Muslims to hell or non-believers to hell. And no one is to judge who is going to hell or who is going to heaven. And it's a whole separate discussion what hell and heaven entails. Yeah. Um, if it's a spiritual hell, if it's a physical hell. Um, so that's that's one of the things I would like people to know. Um, what I find funny, though, just going into that point, it's funny that media and, you know, people that are just not educated about being a Muslim, that they can throw so much hate on it when they think that that is the truth, the true word, is that if you're a non-believer, then you're going to hell, et cetera, et cetera. Where Christianity does that too. Really, mm. I mean, you know, if you're not a believer, then you're going to hell. Look at Israel Falau, for example. I mean, that's exactly what he put in that post. Yeah. You know, if you're not, if you're one of these people, you're going to hell. And basically, if you're a non-believer, so I don't know why it's good for one but not good for another. Yeah, I, I don't understand. That's a bias. So, but that, coming back to that, that's that's what I believe. Um, that's where the media has been biased, like I said before yeah. as well. Uh, and people are misinformed and Islam is totally opposite opposite to that and it's very it's looked down upon for mm. someone to say that you are condemned to hell because no one knows and there are examples from Prophet Muhammad we would find he once narrated an incident of a woman who was a prostitute and who had sinned all her life but once what she did was she found um, a dog panting because uh, he was thirsty so she went down a well in her shoe filled up the shoe with the with the water and brought brought the water to him to that dog and God loved that deed so much. Prophet Muhammad said that God forgave all her sins and she is in heaven. So that's, that's, the, that's the Islam I know and that's yeah. the Islam Prophet Muhammad taught. Yeah. And it's very interesting. I mean, it's, um, it's funny how we can separate the religions so much too. Because, I mean, my Muslim friends, I mean, they've explained a lot because I've asked them many questions and yeah. some of them are, you know, quite silly, but... The understanding of it is so different to what majority perceive. It really, really is. The next question I had for you was, uh, 
this was actually beautifully written, I thought. They say, welcome. <laughs> I hope you feel safe here. Help us understand your personal view of the media, focusing on the minority who misrepresents you. Um, thank you for the welcome. Tracy, I think it is. Yes, it is Tracy. <laughs> um, I do feel safe in Australia, but at the, at the same time, we do have work to do mm. um, in terms of building up um, the social cohesion, the harmony, the understanding. And that's something my community that I'm part of, which is the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, is the single largest sect within Islam, a global sect uh, united under the spiritual leadership of His Holiness Mirza Masur Ahmed. And that's something His Holiness has been pushing us in every country we're part of to do, to work on the social fabric of the society that we're part of and build that and um, reach out to people um, and promote dialogue and conversation. And our motto is love for all, hated for none. And through that motto, um, that's what we're trying to promote. Um, and it's very interesting that she also mentioned and she knows that it's a very small minority because I have some studies that I looked at and it said, even if you can, one of the things that co that's commonly attributed to Islam is terrorism. And the study actually said that since 1970, if you look at all the terror attacks that there has been, there has been about 140,000 terror attacks. Um, and if they were all carried out by Muslims, which would be an absurd assumption in itself, as we all know, um, then those terrorists would still represent only 0.00009% of the Muslim population. And you have more chances of uh, getting struck by a lightning than um, getting into a terrorist attack that's committed by a Muslim. But if you were to blanketly portray all of them as all Muslims as terrorists, then you should also put a blanket on all Muslims being peacemakers because out of the 12 Nobel Peace Prizes, five of them have been Muslim. So yeah. so I, I think there's a gross generalization within um, the media, uh, which has not been very beneficial for a society. And I've already cited some studies at the at the start, um, at the start. Uh, and I believe what by, by the, this portrayal of Muslim and Islam that media has done, they have essentially played into the hands of extremists mm. who want you to believe that Quran teaches violence, who want us to fear each other, to hate each other. Um, and that is why they have been doing this. Um, so the two, the two sections within our society that believes Quran teaches violence, it's ISIS extremists, or it's the anti-Islam or anti-Muslim pundits who are not even scholars, who... who uh, Take what they want to take and then use it for their own. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But in terms of um, in terms of uh, peace and acceptance, I, I do rate Australia quite high up uh, through my experiences as well. But that's not to negate other people's experiences and the studies we've yeah. come across. Because I think it's very different too, probably for yourself. I mean, I can see looking at you, you're, you're dressed very normally. Where if you were wearing, you know, a hijab, then probably you'd be treated very differently. Because I know people myself that, you know, are treated very differently for wearing, you know, what they want to wear, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so, it, you know, it's a very interesting point of view. The next questions, well, there's, a, there's actually a group of questions here, so we'll go one by one. Um, what makes it so special to you? I'm assuming, <laughs> I'm assuming they mean your religion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... What makes religion special to me is um, 
multiple aspects of, of Islam and um, the morality it's brought and taught us. Um, but the, the focus on serving humanity that there is, is what attracts me most. And there are multiple verses within Quran and through example of Prophet Muhammad, we find that he busied himself with serving people. Um, Quran says, when saying what Muslims mean, being a Muslim mean, it says you are raised for the good of mankind. So it says enjoin good and forbid evil. So uh, that's that's one aspect of what I consider to be a very attractive part of religion. But then at the same time, it's also established the rights of different categories within the society. It's established the rights of um, women, the rights of slave, poor uh, neighbors, parents, um, all those different classes. And you see, if you if you leave religion out. By default, if there is no divine guidance, um, there'll be moral lapse. And we see even 100 years before slavery, let's take in America, um, as progressive a country as America is, it was considered normal for, yeah. pe- for people to enslave others. Well, even here with the Aboriginals. With the Aboriginals as well, yeah, our own history in Australia as well. So, and something that Islam so successfully tackled 1400 years ago where wars were specifically fought so they can enslave more and more people because it's free labor. Mm. Um, At that time, Prophet Muhammad successfully through the teaching of Islam countered slavery to the extent that people who were brought up as slaves, he was able to make them and convert them into becoming leaders of certain um, contingents he would send out and um, at different wars of self-defense that they'd have to fight. The people who were slaves before becoming Muslims, they would, um, they, they were the leaders of all the other, um, even close companions of Prophet Muhammad. Um, and that's also one of the aspects that I wanted to touch on in the previous question where uh, Kyra asked us on what I would like to explain to people of what um, people get wrong about Islam is looking at the context of Um, when wars started within Islam and what Muslims of that time had to bear before they were allowed to even fight in self-defense. Because it's often portrayed as if Islam is an ideology, it's not a religion, it's it's a political movement whose only, um, or one of the motives of which is to subdue all Western countries or just take over, you know, just to promote sort of fear, that sort of um, said quite a lot. Uh, and then are cited some of the battles or wars that Muslims had to fight in that time. So if you look at all those contexts of um, the wars that were fought at the time of Prophet Muhammad and soon after the Caliphate had, you would find that every single war they had to fight was because they were forced into it and they were forced to self-defense. But even before that, there was a huge period. There was a period about 13 years long where they had to bear all sorts of persecution where they were killed, they were lynched, they were brutally persecuted, um, they were brutally persecuted, they were dragged on hot sand only because they said God is one. Yeah. And when the, all of this happened, God did not say, now you're allowed to fight back. They said, God said, pick up your bags and migrate. So Muslims, after years and years of uh, persecution, migrated 
hundreds of kilometers away to Medina from Makkah. So Makkah is where Prophet yeah. Muhammad was born and where he was brought up. And Medina is 250 kilometers away. Imagine not having your car and AC yeah. in your car and going through um, that hot desert. Yeah. By foot, um, a journey that took them took him weeks to get to Medina. And when they got to Medina, that's when Muslims had some sort of freedom to practice their religion for not even an year or two when they were attacked again. And this is now we're looking 14 years into when Islam started mm. um, and had gone through all sorts of persecution, social boycott. Prophet Muhammad's wife, who he was married to for 25 years, uh, passed away as a result of that three-year-long social boycott because they did not have enough food to feed themselves. Wow. Um, it was only then that God, that God permitted Muslims to fight in self-defense. And even before that, there are examples of Prophet Muhammad's companions who were before that very um, big figures within the society and people would just fear by the mere sight of them. But when they became Muslims, they were, they were persecuted on the streets and they would come to Prophet Muhammad and say, we were very noble people before we accepted Islam and we were feared. But now that we have accepted Islam, do we not have the right to dignity anymore? allow us to fight back. And mm. Prophet Muhammad's reply was not that, yeah, go fight back now. His reply was, no, I have not been commanded to fight back, so you're only to bear that with patience. But only 13 years of bearing all the persecution and when Muslims had tried every other means of curbing war, did they, did God allow them to um, raise sword? But under what condition? We have to see under what condition did God allow them. So... I'll quote the exact words for you that underpins all wars to be had in that sense. It is the prerequisite for them all. It says, permission to fight is granted to those against whom war is made because they have been wronged and Allah indeed has the power to help them. They are those who have been driven out of their homes unjustly only because they affirmed that Allah is our Lord if Allah did not repel the aggression of some people by means of others, cloisters and churches and synagogues and mosques wherein the name of Allah is oft commemorated would surely be destroyed. Mm. So it did not, God did not say just go find in self-defense for yourself. It says churches, cloisters, synagogues, and then it names mosques. Yeah. That Muslims are to fight to defend all people of all religion if they are being wronged. Um, and so that is one thing I'd like people to know as well that, and if you look at all the future wars that had in, in Prophet Muhammad's time, he only had three wars. In all those three wars, they were in Medina and they were attacked by an army that had gathered soldiers from all across Arabia. And they literally came to the very city, that only city that Muslims had um, to fight them. And they only stayed there and they were, they were, uh, defending themselves and in all these wars Muslims were heavily outnumbered and outsourced and um, they had to face a much stronger army if I was to give you a quick figure in the first battle there were 313 Muslims against a thousand non-believers non yeah. who had come to fight them in the second one it was thousand actually 700 against 3000 in the third one it was 3000 against sometimes it said if an army of 15,000 to 20,000. 20, so one to three ratio is that what Muslims yeah. are fighting. So no one in their right mind would think that it was an aggressive war, especially when you're in, your, in the only city you have and you're, you're there, you're being attacked. And especially back there with technology, your battle you had with sticks and, 
and knives and swords and that's about it. Absolutely. They yeah. had very meager resources as well because yeah. it wasn't as if there was, they had a state that was sourcing them the weapon and stuff. Yeah, it was it. everyone gets whatever they have and mm. they, they have to fight for themselves. Mm. Interesting. Um, what does it mean to be Muslim for you? So another very important aspect of Islam is the connection with your creator. Um, and that's something that Islam's given me. It's helped me identify that this world has a creator. And it's um, lit within me a desire to have a connection with them. And obviously it's a huge debate uh, if there is a God, if there is one, then why does he not, why can't we see them and see him and what is the proof that there is a God? And there are multiple sort of lines of proof that lead us to God. I believe there is cosmo cosmology, cosmological evidence, there is um, cause and effect sort of argument and there are many other arguments of that sort, which to me are, are strong evidence but not strong enough because all they can prove is is that there should be a God. Yeah. That's the level of certainty they can give you. The, if I was to give you an example, would be if you see a smoke from a distance, you can infer that there would be a fire somewhere. Yeah. So that's the level of certainty these can give you. Um, what would be a higher level of certainty is you going close to that place, observing it from your, um, for yourself, and then touching the fire to feel the burn, and that's when you would 100% know oh, there was a fire. Yeah. So that level of certainty or proof to me is um, double-faceted. One of that is the lives of the Prophet Muhammad, prophets, not just Prophet Muhammad, life of the prophets in general, and also the prophecies that they make. So... Um, if you look at the lives of all the prophets, what you would find always is, is that um, they always have humble beginnings with little to no resources in terms of the worldly resources they have. They're always persecuted. Um, they're always opposed. They're always laughed upon. And they're always ridiculed. And from the very start, their message is the same. And to the very end, their message stays the same. And from the very start, they tell the people that it is I who's going to be victorious. It is God has promised me. And they don't say it because I know. They say it because God has told me that this is what shall prevail. And in against all odds, you would always find an example of every single prophet that whatever um, they claimed became the norm afterwards. Um, you'd find that with um, Prophet Moses, Jesus, yeah. Abraham, uh, Ismail, David, uh, Prophet Muhammad and more recently also um, Mirza Ghulam Muhammad, uh, who is the promised messiah um, of the um, sect of Islam that I'm part of called Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Um, and if I was to give you one prophecy of that, he prophesied and said, God has told me that exact words are, quote unquote, I shall cause thy party to reach the corners of the earth. And people laughed at uh, laughed at him and said you are in this small village within India that most Indians don't even are not even aware of and you are confronted by all the forces so there were all the Buddhists, Hindus, um, Christians of uh, an Arya Samaj mm. in that locality they were all opposed to what he was saying because he was saying I am that person that all different religions prophesied 
that you're waiting, the Hindus are waiting for Krishna, Buddhists are waiting for the reincarnation of Buddha or for the return of Buddha. Um, Christians are waiting for Jesus, Muslims are waiting for the return of Jesus and Imam Mahdi. So I am that person who was meant to come. So they were all against him. So in all that odds, he's saying that God has told me that I should yeah. cause that message to be the corners of the earth. And today, 130 years later, Ahmadiyya Muslim community is the single largest sect within Islam and has the most influence of any wow. other sect. But that's just one small prophecy. There are hundreds and thousands of prophecies made by Prophet Muhammad himself and also Mirza Ghulam Ahmad in the recent times that you can test and that you can um, see for yourself if they have come true. And the, the level of evidence I'm talking about here is not someone making 1,000 prophecies and 999 of them coming true. Because in that case, that one wrong, I would at most say was a very good guesswork. Yeah. If thousand of them don't hit the bullseye, then it wasn't a prophet because then God wasn't conveying all that information to him. I'll give you two more prophecies real quick. Um, one of them is from Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. So he prophesied a means of communication in the future, uh, which was to come. Um, and he said there'd be a time in future where there'll be a donkey. He called it donkey, which uh, and defined some of his characteristics. He said it would fly above clouds. It would be. He didn't say it was. A, it would be an ordinary donkey. Donkey would be. A, it would be a different one, which would be so big. He said where people would sit not on top of it, but in its belly. It would consume fire. It would eat fire, but somehow the people sitting within it would be saved from it. It said the distance between its two ears would be about 40 yards. And it said its one foot would be in the west, the other would be in the east. And then it goes on and then there are multiple, there are multiple uh, different narrations about the same donkey that he talked about. And there are others that say, not only will, we, will it be able to fly, it will also be able to travel on um, sea. And it would swell up to such a huge size that it can carry mountains worth of uh, food supplies. Um, so I would leave it up to the audience to decide if there is any modern um, means of communication that fits the description. Um, but you'd have, to, you'd have to think what it was 1400 years ago that Prophet Muhammad was, yeah. and who was it who was telling Prophet Muhammad about combustion engines which run on fire. Uh, but there was no word in the dictionary to define that, so he was explaining that in the best in in the best possible way with the available vocabulary. I mean, I was just thinking like aeroplanes and ships, and yeah. you know, yeah, there's many things that that could be, yeah. you know. But could what we have to say could could a person 1400 years ago in the deserts of Arabia, where the where majority <laughs> exactly. of them were nomads, uh, could they have? Could someone could have just made something up yeah. and said that this is what God is telling me and based everything that he's done in his life to just ruin essentially if it wasn't to come true? Mm. And that's just one example. There, there are hundreds and thousands within his example, uh, hundreds and thousands within his life as well that fulfilled within his life. But if I was to come to another more recent one, um, Mirza Ghulam Hamid, uh, peace be upon him, who was the founder of my community. Um, who basically, he hasn't come to start a new religion, he hasn't come to reform Islam. Islam doesn't need reform, Muslims need reform. So he came to reform Muslims and revive Islam. So he also prophesied something in 1905 and he said a new, a different sort of, 
a different sort of calamity is uh, about to overtake this world. Um, and he gave some some explanations of and some he explained some different aspects of that calamity. And what he mentioned was is that all kings would fight against each other. Um, another aspect of that was that Tsar, who was the king of Russia then, who was the world's most uh, rich person, he also commanded the world's biggest army and he owned world's one-sixth of the land. He, he said, the Prophet Messiah said, Tsar would be in a miserable condition. And when Prophet, Maha, Prophet, uh, Prophet Messiah was mentioning these prophecies, Tsar at that time, there was no indication that he's going to have his decline anytime soon. Prophet Messiah also said that fire would drop from the heavens. Um, he said there would be so much bloodshed that rivers of blood would flow. And he also said that that would be a time when the children of Israel would return to their land. So all these different aspects within just one prophecy. And when, when he said in 1905 that the fire would drop from the heavens, I want you to know that Wright brothers by then hadn't even done their first uh, flight, the experiment they were doing. And for and then World War One, the the first um, first war to have the scale of air warfare that it had, and then as a result in that very war, as part of that same um, same calamity, Tsar was killed and his whole family was killed in front of each other's eyes in the most brutal manner. Um, and there are narrations of Gallipoli that rivers of blood uh, that that. The, the the rivers of blood flew basically the water at Gallipoli was red 50 yards out um, it was a world war of it was the first world war because the world hadn't seen a phenomenon then where all countries would be involved um, and then as a result of the same um, as a continuation of the same sequence of events was also when um, children of Israel returned to their land as well where that agreement was signed so for me that's the that that is a very important aspect of um, of Islam. That's why it's so special to me, and that's why it's so intriguing to me. The more you delve in, the more you realize the truths there are, and th that's the kind of proof that I talk about and I think about when I think of a creator and I think of having a relationship with him. And yeah, funny enough, with me, I've always wondered to myself, religion plays such a big part on our planet and, and it also causes so much trouble on our planet. And I've always wondered why we're sending spaceships up to the, to the moon to see what's up there and all that sort of stuff, where I've always wondered why aren't they spending money on trying to prove religion? Do you know what I mean? Like prove that God existed. So therefore we can make some decisions in, in history and in life and go, okay, well, he, it didn't, it never happened. So let's just change our way of thinking and move on. Or yes, he did exist. So let's now, you know, look at that. I've always wondered why we don't actually investigate it a lot more. Yeah. You um, know, try and get some physical proof. Absolutely. And, and I, uh, that's a very good question and a very good way to look at it. But here's, here's what I think, you have to see is is that Islam says it has to be individual search. It has to be the person 
with an open heart mm. looking for God and then God says it's upon me to manifest myself to him so all Comes back to faith yeah. absolutely so if Islam says if someone ha- wants to search for God he has to do it with an on he or she has to do it with an honest heart and you can only be the judge of that if you're doing it with an honest heart and then it says um, then the rest the honest is of God to prove to manifest himself on you all it requires on one's part is to do a search on its own um, but to demand a sort of proof where you can visibly see something has his own has its own um, um, what's the right word for it um, but to demand such a proof is not is not why why we why we think that's not enough is because there are all sort of things that we can't see what we believe in. You can't see your pain, you can't see that you're hurt or that you're Which loving that, someone, yeah. but you know that exists. There are all sort of radiations around us that we can't see, but there are different instruments we can use um, to tell that there are these radiations that exist. So there's a there are hundreds of things around us that we don't see. So almost demanding that unless I see God with my physical eyes or my physical senses, which are limited in itself, would be to say, I would not believe that there is a smell unless I can taste it, or I would not believe that there are colors unless I could hear them, or I would not believe there is sound unless I could smell it. So you have to, you're demanding a different, every different sort of proof for a different dimension is yeah. what I'm coming to. But to say that religions brought also a lot of bad, um, I would like to slightly disagree with that only because I believe humans have an innate capacity to be evil. And all religion does is tries to tame it. So if, if religion, if, if you believe lack of religion causes good, then you would have, you have the biggest atheist state, China, that is persecuting Muslims, that is um, violating human rights on every level. And why are they not doing all the good that we would, would expect them? So sh- surely um, that should be a proof enough that one one billion people who are atheists, they should be doing all the good if religion was if all the bad can be attributed to religion. And we would always see that the bad that comes it doesn't come because of religion, it comes because of lack of adherence to the principle it's laid down. And you'd always see that all the wars that have been fought. If you look at all the bloodshed in the nineteen hundreds, if you look at all the wars, except one or two, which if religious could would be Christian um, uh, or Christian based um, they have all been secular wars and they have caused hundreds of millions of lives. Mm. Um, and then, then coming back to that again, instead of focusing so much money, like you said, on sending, um, ship, uh, sending spaceships and whatnot, why don't we actually spend that money? We were talking about service to humanity just before. Why don't we actually spell that, yeah. spend that money to... Um, get rid of world hunger it's not as if god hadn't made enough food on this earth to feed for everyone there is enough food in this world to go around the what 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 is lacking is an effort or an effort and and compassion and effort on our part so if you look at the the wars that america has recently fought just um the war in afghanistan and iraq they have ended up spending about two trillion dollars or or thereabouts on it and that was enough money to uh, extinguish or to finish um, world hunger many times over. So you, you see that 
when you find examples where what you're calling where religion has brought bad, it's because certain people who attribute themselves to certain religions who do not follow or adhere to that, those teachings is the bad that they have brought about. So it's and it's also the, I mean, let's go back to the media, but it's also uh, they love focusing on the bad. It, it's a Absolutely. good story where if they were to go and look at a church that is doing good things, they're not going to go and publish that. And they never do because they just don't really want us to hear about it. Doesn't make for a good story. Yeah, does it? exactly. Um, the next question: Do you find it hard to pray five times a day, especially being in the West? Right. So, as a Muslim, as you know now, that we have to pray five times a day. One of them's the first one in the day is before dawn. Um, the second one's in the afternoon, or just noon time. The third one in the afternoon. The fourth one comes just after sunset, and the fifth one's a little bit later in the evening. So here's the thing about Islam, as Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, do not make religion hard because you would not be able to follow it. Islam mm. asks its believers to take a middle path, do not become too lenient or too harsh because if you become too lenient, then you'll have the religion slip away from you. If you become too extreme or too hard, then you won't be able to follow it, plus you'll turn people away. So if Prophet Muhammad has also taught us all of this through his example. That's why we believe the, or we don't believe it, it is the source of Islam. So the second source of Islam is Prophet Muhammad's actions. So if at some time I cannot pray at a certain time, um, if I have a compulsory session at university going on or for some, I'm working, I can't get a break or something, you can always combine prayers, the afternoon prayers, you can combine them together with the earlier one or the latter right. one and also the evening prayers. But the thing about prayers is that is 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 that as long as you're conscious and um, you're alive, you have to pray. Islam says if you're sick, lie down and pray. Sit down and pray. If you let's say someone is injured or is it is can I ask a question? Is there is there a is there a time limit? Yeah, there is. Yeah, right. so it's not like just one within that five minutes or ten minutes yeah, you pray. Yeah. So. The first one starts just after the twilight till dawn, which is at time span about about one hour and 20 or 30 minutes. Um, likewise, with the afternoon, it's about two hours. With the noon one, it's about two hours as well. Just The one just after sunset is slightly shorter. It's about 40, 40 minutes. That's a long so. time, though. Yeah, so between that, all you have to spare is like five or ten minutes to pray. Right. You, you do the evolution, which involves washing your hands, your your face, your elbows your um, and your feet and why that is important is because your outer purity has to do a lot of relation to do with your inner purity just like your body has a connection with your soul um, and so I don't find praying hard um, if you have the commitment to do it so you can always like I said you can always combine prayers if you're at a busy on a certain time of a certain day Cool. All right. So the next question. The word homosexual didn't appear in the modern version of the Bible until 1983. Is it in the Quran? And if so, when did it first appear? I don't think the exact word homosexual within Islam, but I guess what you're more so asking is, is that this crazy... Um, these crazy things we see going around in some of the Muslim countries where they're persecuting 
mm. um, homosexuals and throwing them off the roof and stuff like that, which is absolutely abhorrible. Um, is that a part of Islam? Is that, I believe you're asking. Um, and no, absolutely it's not. Islam has not condemned any homosexuals to um, any punishment. It, Islam believes that everyone has the right to a private life. And so to deny anyone that right is breaching their privacy. At the same time, does Islam condone um, homosexuality? First of all, we also have to see that Islam has also acknowledged that people are susceptible to certain tendencies and impulses. It does not deny that, not just being a homosexual, but like other certain tendencies yeah. that people might have as well. It has not declined that, declined that we have a plethora of impulses and tendencies, which might differ from person to person as well. Um, but much like its uh, predecessor monotheistic religions in the world, um, Christianity and Judaism, it does not condone uh, homosexuality. Um, but as I said, our motto as Ahmadi Muslims is love for all, hatred for none. Do people, people, are, people are asking us, does your um, love also extend to homosexuals? And it absolutely does. And I would have the same compassion and love for a homosexual person as I would have for anyone else. Um, can a homosexual be a Muslim? He certainly can be or she can be. Um, there, no one can stop them from coming to mosques or uh, becoming part of the Muslim uh, becoming a becoming a Muslim, um, but what we have to see is is that if we believe that there exists a God, which is why you would become a Muslim, there exists a God, and He has sent certain teachings, which is for the benefit of, um, which is for our spiritual and moral growth, and also for the for the benefits of the benefit of the whole society as a whole. Then what it asks its followers is to. Um, to suppress certain desires or tendencies they might have if their belief is strong enough. And if mm. not, then that's a gradual growth for them. So very similar. I mean, really with Christianity, I mean, from my knowledge, you know, it's, you know, if you were to go and ask a sort of a very Christian person, they would say that they we do are condemned mm. um, within the Bible, which we aren't really. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's again down to the you deciphering what you think the Bible is saying to you. And, again, we're looking at something that was written so long ago mm. that, you know, potatoes, oranges, you know, we, we can take our own perception of things. Um, and... Same with Christianity is that I can be a Christian as long as I suppress my homosexuality. And it's not really suppressing. I suppose mm. the better word would be uh, is to not act upon the homosexual tendencies. That's really how it's been explained to me with Christianity. And I, mm. I get that part because it's, it's almost like when you're looking at a nun or a priest, when they're really devoting themselves to the religion, they therefore give up the whole sexuality side altogether. Do you know what I mean? So if you're going to really be taking whatever religion you choose seriously and really throw yourself into it, then there are going to be things you're going to have to give up. Yeah. You know? Um, also on that point, the worldwide head of the Amnia Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Masur Ahmed, has um, been asked about this and he has said that if uh, homosexuals don't feel safe elsewhere, they should be granted asylum. 
in Britain, where, which is where he resides, or other yeah. countries where they can be safe. So there is absolutely no point of um, condemnation or persecution um, that Islam would ever support for um, homos- homosexuality. Um, that that being said, again, like you mentioned, where priests and nuns they abstain from all sort of sexual activities all altogether. That's also something that Islam does not condone because um, the way God has made us, it has He has put us put in us certain instincts, and to totally uh, abstain or refrain from that would be against the natural impulse we have, yeah. and that's looked on. What thing causes trouble? I mean, that's why Which you have that. priests then that's going and doing what some of them have done. Yeah. Yeah. So the Quran actually reveres women. So why do the men interpreting it twist the words for their personal gain? Yeah, like I said, so that's for men to answer who actually do that. The Quran or Islam cannot be held answerable to that. But coming back to the whole philosophy of segregation and also hijab and um, covering yourself, first of all, that has to be understood when the teaching of covering came men were the first one to be dressed and the the Quran, the verses were lower your gaze and guard your modesty. And then the same was said for the women. But then also women had at a later time, at a, in a later chapter that was revealed, there were also additional instructions that basically essentially said, essentially said draw a covering over your head. Um, but the whole philosophy of segregation is to stop women from being tried at the hands of men, from men or, and also from, and also by stop women getting hypersexualized and hypersensationalized as we see in the modern world mm. um, where men consider them a commodity and an object to be looked at and, and just drive pleasure from that so that's the whole philosophy behind that um, funny enough going back to what we first spoke about which i did not know until you explained it about how you know women were looked at very highly and so were m- mothers and and all that sort of stuff it, I sort of do get the covering now because it's it's almost like they respect women so much that they don't want them to be looked at as sexual objects. But it's not so much of what men don't like women to be looked at. It's also, it's it's not even that. Like men do not have a say in what women and men don't wear. When the teaching came, why it is there is for women to become confident within themselves and and within their character and for, for them to send out a message that I'm not an object to be looked at mm. from where you can drive pleasure. I, ha- I have a character. I'm, a, I'm an individual human being and I am more than what I just look like. So I'm not just someone you can just look like. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a human being. I think it would be funny and it would be interesting to actually do a study because we have such a thing in the Western world where women have now been going on about it since, you know, the 60s and sort of reclaiming, you know, their individuality and stuff where they're talking about body image and how other women will actually look at them and judge and the way they're dressing and how big they are or how small they are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It would be very interesting to see whether that happens in the Muslim world with the women themselves, you know what I mean, because majority of the time they are covered. So they're not sort of able to be seen in that way. It would be very interesting. So, just going off by yeah, the point absolutely. there. Absolutely. And you, you get it, right? So mm. it's just Islam saved us from all sort of offshoot problems that are going to arise, that have actually arise from um, hypersexualizing female yeah. gender. But also on that aspect, women, 
do have a feminine charm and that's also why Islam's asked um, or commanded women to draw a covering over their head. So the interaction between within the society when you have, it's more meaningful and does not merely uh, look at the um, appearance of individuals, but mm. more so at the, at the weight of their character that they have. All right, so we've got our last question. Muslim women dress with modesty, which is why the hijab and non-figure hugging clothes are worn. This is in order to discourage men. Why can't the men simply control themselves? And then leading on from that, why must the women be forced to cover up when it is the men that have the problem in controlling their lustful thoughts? So why women are asked to wear certain clothes is not so that men, because men cannot control themselves. And that I have recited the verse before where God has asked Muslims, men, to lower their gaze and guard their modesty. That's their part. And then the woman's part is the woman's part, to lower their gaze and guard, guard their modesty. So it's, it's, not, it's not an excuse for men to do something and say, oh, that's because women weren't dressed properly. That's no way Islam has actually closed that window for men to, to have that excuse or to, to say that by saying, you guard your, more, your chastity and lower your gaze. So I think what I'm getting from it, and hopefully some listeners will get this thinking too, um, is that it's not men that are forcing women to do it. It's the Quran that's suggesting it to women. Therefore, they're taking it upon themselves to cover themselves, to follow the word, but also to cover modesty and to lower their gaze, etc., etc. But not only women are doing it, men are also doing it also in their own way that Absolutely. the Quran has asked. Absolutely. So it, it, it's not, it's not, God hasn't given men the right to police women on how they dress and they don't. If the women feel strong enough in their belief and they believe that the teaching is for the good as a whole for us, then they adhere to it. And if not, then no men can force it among the women. And that's something His Holiness Mirza Masurama has repeatedly spoken about, that men are not to police women. It's not... It's not in their place to do that. And I think if, if, if an Australian that, you know, sort of isn't knowledgeable about the religion and they do see someone, you know, say a Muslim man that is sort of being forceful with, with a woman, then that's them. It's an individual story. It's what's happening in their own home. It's what he's taken upon himself and out of the religion to go and do. It's not something that every other one of them is doing. Absolutely. You know what I mean? We've got to remember that each case is individual. It's, you know, it's, it's up to their personal beliefs. It's up to how much they believe in the religion, whether, you know, I mean, I know Muslims that drink, you know, and party and do whatever, you know what I mean? It doesn't mean every single one of them is doing that mm-hmm. again. Yeah. So yeah. if someone's doing that at, at their house or if they're forcing their wives or however, whoever to dress a certain way, then the only person to be responsible for that is them. Islam hasn't given them the authority, neither is their place to do that. Um, women are free to um, wear hijab and not to, fear, not to wear hijab. If, if a Muslim woman or any, for that matter, any non-Muslim woman come to a mosque and she's not wearing hijab, she doesn't have to wear hijab to come to the mosque. It's, it's, it's totally got to do with her and her God. And I think people need to realise too what's going on under those hijabs. Like majority of those women have got the most amazing makeup, the most uh, gorgeous shoes, and as soon as they get home, they're not wearing the hijab, are they? Most of them are taking it off and just being at home, being themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, listen, Hadi, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time and thank you for answering all the listeners' questions. There were some doozies in there. Um, but I really, really appreciate it. Could you actually let the listeners know about the groups and about what you do so they can actually maybe contact you themselves? Absolutely. So, guys, check out muslimsdownunder.com, um, which is a campaign I'm part of, and it's a nationwide campaign that offers you um, different services. So you can sign up for Coffee and Islam, uh, where we shout you coffee, you get to ask us questions at your favorite coffee shop and we assign you volunteer. And also our Question Islam events, which is an open forum Q&A that happens with an imam that you can either invite us to or suggest us to hold it at a certain place and we um, make that happen. Also, there's a lot of misinformation about Islam. Hopefully you've come to realize a bit of that. Uh, and if you would ever come across something on the media or the social media, um, that you want to verify or check, go to alislam.org. That is A-L-I-S-L-A-M.org. You can find copies of Quran in 70 different languages. Um, you can find biography of Prophet Muhammad. Read it for yourself. Investigate, contemplate, think, question, and seek. Um, do not have uh, preconceived notions. Education is key. Yeah. Don't assume because it makes an ass out of you and me. Alrighty, thank you so much. Thanks very much for having me, Anna. Pleasure, likewise.